This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Steve Auth. He is the author of the just-published Pilgrimage to the Museum, Man's Search for God Through Art and Time, just out from Sophia Institute Press. Uh, Steve, uh, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Thanks for having me, Dan. So full disclosure to everyone, I uh, work with Steve in the investment industry, but the uh, book is not about uh, the stock market. In fact, uh, for those of you who are regular listeners uh, will recall that I recently conducted an interview with Vitaly Katznelson, Uh, also in the investment industry, whose uh, book, A Soul in the Game, The Art of a Meaningful Life, was published earlier this year. It is a book about stoicism and his search for meaning in life through the stoics and trying to bring that uh, to readers. And uh, I'm delighted, Steve, that you, in a sense, have done something uh, similar, parallel perhaps, in our siloed times and professions and particularly the traditional approach to book writing, uh, you've produced an unusual work in that it is across the silos, part art history, part personal religious journey, part meditation on spirituality in a non-sectarian context, part museum guide. Given the uh, challenges associated with all of those cross currents, it's eminently readable and a beautifully produced book. Perhaps the best introduction for this type of material is to, to tell us how the book came about. There's a, a story behind the story. Well, for years, uh, my wife and I have been given tours of the Med to our out-of-town visitors, you know, that come to visit New York. Um, and then probably about a dozen years ago, Dan, I had a pretty serious spiritual reawakening. And one day I was standing in front of a painting by Rembrandt with one of the docents at the Metropolitan. All of them were trained the way I was trained at Princeton, which is to look at art in a kind of archaeological, almost scientific way. Um, And she was doing a kind of perfect job, frankly, in describing a particular Rembrandt called the Toilet of Bathsheba. Um, But with this sort of different perspective that was in my head at the time, I began to see that this painting was actually not 
about the brush strokes and the oriental period of Rembrandt and all the other things that kind of cause our eyes to glaze over, frankly, as we work our way through a museum these days with a museum guide, um, but really about uh, Rembrandt's own struggle in his personal life and maybe my own struggle in my personal life and maybe many of us um, in, in trying to do the right thing, um, maybe seeking God in a way. I, I came back, back from the museum that day. I told my wife, sweetie, we, we're doing this tour all the wrong way. We, we've got to reapproach the art um, you know, keeping the best of the archaeological backdrop, which is very important in understanding the context of any given work of art, but um, really pushing the boundaries a little bit to think about this from the perspective of uh, art is beauty, uh, God is beauty in some ways, um, and artists in some ways, I think, who are particularly talented in describing beauty in some ways are are seeking God or seeking their creator in a more existential sense. And once we start looking at the art from that angle, the entire tour actually changed from being a highlights of the Met tour with as many paintings as we could squeeze in on any given night to a narrative that actually played out over 5,000 years, as you started to see some of the same themes and challenges that occur in one century recur centuries later with a different artist. And that narrative became very personal. Um, the tour went from being something people were sort of dragged through, frankly, uh, <laughs> when we used to give it. Like now 45 minutes is not enough. Now we got to do an hour and a half. You know, there was admissions fee involved here. Um, to something that became a must-to destination for many couples that we knew were in our circles here in New York, but then from around the country, um, the, the waiting list to get into the tour got longer and longer. And finally, I decided to write a book about it uh, as a way of bringing it to more people. My wife and I are still somewhere on that waiting list. We're hoping to move up. I'm hoping by virtue of this interview that we'll we'll move up the the leaderboard a little bit. Uh, the the Met is very large. It's easy for you know someone to get lost in trying to uh, sew a thread, uh, follow a thread through the museum. You keep it tightly wound by focusing on what are for you the religious elements or the spiritual elements. I keep saying religious, but in many ways, it's more spiritual because so much of the art that you're covering is, is not explicitly Catholic or Christian even. It starts with the Egyptian period for which the, the Met has a spectacular collection and continues into modern artwork by artists who wouldn't identify as Catholic or even Christian. But you can see clearly in your expositions, the spirituality, the, the struggles that they're, they're, they're going through. But it, it must have been quite a challenge. And you kind of refer to this the Met's a large place, choosing 50 or 60 pieces. It sounded like there were some uh, wrestling matches with your your uh, your wife and uh, uh, co-writer, co-conspirator in this exercise as to which which works of art got in and which did not. Yeah, I mean, we started out with, with the uh, classics uh, and then gradually uh, paintings got added and dropped based on input. Um, Evelyn, of course, has a big role to play. There's a priest involved, Father Sean Aaron, who often came with us on many tours. He's kind of a mischievous individual. 
And uh, I would often find him or her while I'm giving a wonderful exposition on a Poisson or something in the French gallery, wandering off, um, and something would catch their eye, and they'd come back to me and say, Steve, we really consider this. And, um, you know, initially I would resist, but then I would, you know, go back by myself and meditate on that painting and so, gee, this, this could actually, this, this has some real interest. There's a, a painting like that. I'm actually thinking about it, Deanna, as, as I'm talking, uh, called the Penitent Magdalene, um, which shows up actually, um, Pierre de Montebello, one, you know, the longest serving director of the Med, wrote his own book about art um, and museums called Rendezvous with Art. And he runs, he write actually a pretty interesting meditation on that. It's one of his favorite paintings at the Met. And you often you find people gathered around it, this image of this mysterious woman, um, you know, holding or previously holding uh, pearls. They've, she's tossed them aside and she's looking at a mirror. And um, I think a lot of the folks that come that are just entranced by that painting, and even Montebello himself doesn't really try to explain what's going on, um, but they just find it sort of hypnotic in some ways um, in its mystery. And we, we try to unlock that a little bit uh, in Pilgrimage to the Museum. It, it's very clear. So I have a, at least a passing familiarity with the major trends in art history and have been to the Met many times. It, my next visit will be dramatically changed as a result. And anyone who reads this book will be in the same position. You won't be able to uh, simply quickly pass by the works that are discussed here without trying to really see what you're seeing. And, and I think uh, the toilet of uh, Bathsheba is a great example of that. Maybe we can get to that in greater detail, but you're seeing having done this so much and coming at from it, uh, coming to it from a spiritual angle, uh, are seeing things that, frankly, I've not seen in these artworks. I, I'm more in that traditional vein. And so I, I really appreciate what you, and you, you referenced that in some cases, you and Evelyn will stare or stand in front of a, an artwork for hours until it comes together for you. And then you've, you've synthesized that for, for the rest of us. Yeah, that's kind of what we're trying to do. And I'd say, Dan, that um, what's interesting about the perspective we take is because it's rooted first in highly classical training in art history. I mean, I, you know, most of what I learned about how to analyze art came through the history department at Princeton, which is, you know, perhaps one of the most foremost educators. And frankly, I did not get a degree in art history, by the way, nor a PhD. I was managed to, you know, to get through many of their classes though, and uh, had that training. But a lot of the art that we look at, um, that classical training actually is valuable in understanding what's going on. But the spiritual perspective, I think is a little unusual. When you mix the two together, things start to come to the fore that a purely spiritual reading of the art might not have seen. Um, and a purely classical reading of the art might not have seen. It, yeah, would definitely not have seen having had a, a fair amount, as I said, of the classical approach. You, you do at the end of the day, and I think this is partially due to a, the narrative structure of any book, you do kind of a beginning, a middle, and sort of an end. And it, it, it it's showing, starts with the pre-Christian, that is Egyptian art and uh, early uh, art of the of our era, uh, and, and take that through to the modern period where 
the uh, issues of spirituality are maybe at a, at a different level. And do you want to kind of provide the overview about man seeking God, God seeking man that kind of frames this 5,000 year, 3,000 year, 4,000 year narrative? Yeah, uh, you know, I'd like to say, Dan, that I came at it with trying to create that narrative. And, and you know, I could take credit for the structure that you've just um, alluded to. Um, but honestly, it emerged, actually, in the process, which itself is interesting. Uh, the tomb of Perneb, I'll confess, was simply at the beginning of the tour because it was at the beginning of Western art. And so it seemed obvious we should start there. So it was a very simple chronological development. It was only after I kind of studied this thing for a long time, it occurred to me, well, in some ways, isn't this kind of neat? Um, this painting is about, from a Catholic perspective, what one would call original sin or from a Hebrew perspective, a Jewish perspective, um, it's from Genesis 2, the creation of, of man in some ways, right? So what's going on in the tomb of Pernab? I was, you know, we go in there and you see this, this tomb from 5,000 years ago. And of course, the Egyptians in those days um, were hopeful that, in fact, all their art was seeking the eternal, by the way. I mean, you know, all the art that survives is from the tombs. And their spirituality, just for those of your listeners who are not familiar, the basic concept was that if you were wealthy enough or rich enough, uh, you could build a tomb, keep your body embalmed, bury with you all your favorite things, and pass through that tomb into the afterlife with, let's call it the U-Haul following the hearse with you. So you could make yourself a divinity, in a sense. And... Um, you know, the, the Egyptians, of course, all knew that wealthy people buried some really valuable stuff in these tombs. So unfortunately, most of them were sacked shortly after they were created. Um, and it became an exercise of trying to protect and hide. And, you know, everyone knows about some of these stories, the tomb of King Tut, etc. Um, but of course, they all had this kind of plan B in case plan A didn't work. And plan A, plan B is in the walls of the Met. They've, they've transported this tomb of Pernap all the way from Egypt um, over uh, to the Met. And on the walls are these wonderful, still existent paintings and images of plan B. And plan B has Pernap seated. And when an Egyptian is seated, he's in a position of a divinity to be adored and bigger than life. Um, so as a god, if you will, and all the little people are bringing Perneb all his favorite things, his wine, his music, his guitars, etc. So this is, um, if you will, the first block that all of us have in seeking the eternal, seeking the divine. We instinctively want to make ourselves the divine. Um, and not, you know, bow before him, if you will. Adam and Eve in Genesis do the same thing, right? They try to make themselves God, and it doesn't work out so well for them either. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting that the tomb of Pernab is the beginning, but in some ways it is 
is sort of the first of many hurdles we all have in seeking the you know seeking God really in our lives. Um, we we aren't willing to kneel down before Him to to adopt a humble posture before God, and with that we only find ourselves, not Him. So the the book is uh, has vignettes about each of these works about a, a, a several dozen works, and. Uh, they all kind of come together in a narrative of, of the various efforts of human beings to come together with these big questions in the spirituality. Let, let's move on. We've, so we've, we've discussed a little bit. And again, each of these vignettes is short a page or two. The, work is, the book is beautifully produced uh, and has high quality uh, plates that allow you to see what you're discussing. So it's, it's really, in some ways, it's not really a coffee table book, but it's a bedside table book. It is uh, a dose a night, a chapter a night. Uh, it, it really works out very well. How about a couple of the other examples that uh, really stand out to you among the, I think it's 62, Steve, you said 62 plates or 62. Yeah, there's a lot of color plates in there. And they're, what's, like, what's really nice about them, Dan, is that they've interspersed them within the text. So you're not flipping around. Correct. It really has this, they wanted to create this feeling that you're on a pilgrimage, on a journey. Um, yeah, people ask me for my favorites, and I, you know, I love all my children. Uh, yeah, I could give you a couple. We kind of touched a little bit on on uh, the toilet of Bathsheba. There's a wonderful image. Um, Rembrandt is a kind of figure that appears and reappears in in the pilgrimage. There's three images from him there, which is almost the most of any art. This El Greco probably has a few more, but there's an image called. Um, Aristotle with the bus of Homer. And one of Rembrandt's problems, by the way, was that, you know, at that time, the wealthy patrons of Amsterdam, this is in 17th century Amsterdam, kind of controlled the art world. And they were mostly looking for interior decorating projects to decorate their mansions. And he wanted to do something a little bit deeper. And so he never quite gave anyone what they wanted. Um, he struggled all his life, he actually died, you may know, bankrupt. Um, but about middle of his career, he gets asked typically to paint uh, a painting called Aristotle with the bus of Homer. And um, I like to refer to it on the tour and in the pilgrimage as, uh, our, you know, Rembrandt's greatest self-portrait. And the docents walking by, they'll kind of smirk because they know that it's not a self-portrait of Rembrandt. And I would say, well, this is a portrait of Rembrandt's soul. And his soul and struggle. And yeah, technically it's Aristotle with his uh, right hand on virtue, which is the bust of Homer, and his left hand on mammon, which is this gold chain he's been sent from his great student, Alexander the Great, sort of the ill-gotten wealth of the world, if you will. And what's wonderful about the painting is Rembrandt is standing there um, trying to decide whether to keep his hand on virtue or whether to grab the gold chain. The right hand is kind of patting the head of Homer, and the left hand is fingering the gold chain. And when you go and look at his, his face, and this is the thing that, you know, if there's one painting to see, Dan, on your next trip back to the museum, I would say this is it. And tell me what he's going to do. I mean, how he painted this in two-dimensional form, this struggle of his soul, this window into his own soul of what to do. And he was struggling with a really big problem at that time, which we get into in the book and comes out later in 
his great image from the Hermitage, um, the return of the prodigal son, but my goodness, um, what an image, you know, a painting of a soul. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You mentioned uh, prior to that, skipped over uh, El Greco. And I have to mention one paragraph that you wrote on El El Greco because I thought it's almost a perfect paragraph. If you don't mind, I'm actually going to read it. It won't take too much of our limited time. But uh, El Greco's surreal canvases, especially this one, and it's just referring to the adoration of the uh, of the shepherds would often leave his viewers of later generations baffled and uninterested, especially those who did not share the mystical religiosity of the early 1600s, Toledo. I will confess that I also found El Greco confusing for many years, but after my spiritual awakening, I suddenly fell in love with him. His ability to transport me from here to heaven and back again is quite unique among all the great artists I've studied. El Greco is in some ways a kind of perfect synthesis of art and spirituality that is courageous, mystical, and visually appealing all at the same time. I was struck by that as uh, I have obviously a great admiration for um, El Greco and how his brushstrokes and the intensity of his paintings. And yet it's centuries before you see that type of abstraction and intensity. And I thought, you know, I explained to my child, you know, when was this painted recently or five centuries ago? And it turns out it was five centuries ago, yet it, it, it has this freshness. So I, I found that a particularly uh, appealing description of, of the many vignettes. And there are others like that. Yeah, and there's this wonderful um, image in, in, in the book. We steal a few paintings from outside the Met. This one is from the MoMA called the Damazelles de Avignon, which I think most of your listeners probably are familiar with. Um, and what's really fascinating is that in some ways, El Greco helped launch modern art. Uh, the Damazelles de Avignon is Picasso's first attempt at abstract art called Cubism. And from there, Cubism goes into full flower. And then pretty soon you're in purely abstract art. And there's a number of abstract paintings in the pilgrimage. But what's really fascinating, if you put the Damazelles de Avignon side by side with El Greco's opening of the fifth seal, which is in the Metropolitan and is in the pilgrimage, um, my goodness, he has stolen, and he's purposely doing this, I think. He discovered uh, the Demoiselles of Avignon in a gallery in Paris in 1903, at which time he was in his so-called Rose period, painting still realistic images. And then three years later emerges the Demoiselles de Avignon. Um, and I, I think I said he discovered Demoiselles. He discovered the opening of the fifth seal by El Greco it was just sitting around. Yeah. And and he and he took it and brought it back to his house. 
So, you know, um, the two were kind of interrelated, which is ironic because El Greco, of course, is a religious mystic painting in this surreal vision because he's he's painting images that are here on earth, but somehow in heaven. Um, and Picasso imitates the style to create a new version of art, but makes himself God instead of finding him. And of course, starts the route towards abstraction. He takes an image of divine love and turns it into profane love. So it's, it's a really interesting um, comparison, I think, that's in the pilgrimage. And you can ask yourself where I am on this spectrum, but it, it, it's kind of a, you know, kind of a highlight. So many of us, perhaps from a more secular background, are familiar with the religious nature of much of the classical high art of Western tradition. Uh, you've handled the, the Egyptian pre-Christian art nicely, but a, a great deal of the paintings up until the 16th, 17th century are explicitly religious in one form or another. What I think is so interesting about your book is you you carry the spirituality, the looking for spirituality and the, the narrative through to when art becomes much more secular. You have a discussion of, of Hopper. You have a discussion of Jackson Pollock. You have a discussion of Mark Rothko. And I, I think that their work, and, and uh, we might know them as struggling with spiritual issues, but not in a, in a religious, in a um, Catholic or Christian sense, but definitely struggling with, with spiritual issues. And to link that together with the, the same issues from the more explicitly religious artists uh, working in a the, uh, explicitly Christian tradition, necessarily given their time, is really quite fascinating. And I think that's where a, a lot of listeners will say, huh, that makes a lot of sense. Do you want to kind of highlight one or two of the uh, post-religious art spirituality uh, elements of the tour? Well, you mentioned uh, Rothko, and I, I just, you know, love Rothko. I've always loved Rothko. Um, there's always something about his images. I think everyone's familiar with his basic images concept. Uh, you know, the square paint, it's got many layers in it and designed to just stand in front of and be pulled into some sort of transcendent reality. Um, and as I did some more research on Rothko uh, in preparing uh, for the pilgrimage, I actually discovered he had a, a a kind of seeker's mentality. I don't know that it was ever fully satisfied. Rothko uh, was initially and kind of immigrated to US um, as a Jewish man. Uh, his name was Marcus Rakowitz, I believe. And during the war, he Americanized his name, which I think some American Jews did just because of the anti-Semitism of the day. But in any case, um, Rothko spent the last seven years of his life, which I didn't know, um, decorating a Catholic church or building and decorating a Catholic church, paint, doing paintings for it in Houston, Texas, that's today known as the Rothko Chapel. Um, so he was a man, um, I think, fascinated with this idea of an energy force out there. And I think once um, our culture kind of kills off God, which I get into in the chapter called The End of the Soul and the Death of God, um, you know, the artists who are kind of especially connected with them because of their connection or their talent that he's, I think, in my world, given them to describe beauty, they're kind of 
struggling like the rest of us to find him in this in this world that doesn't feel like it needs him. And um, I think Rothko is is a really interesting figure in that quest. Uh, and someone that I think many of us can relate to because many of us have made him a more impersonal person in our ether, if you will. And, you know, that can work or not work for folks depending on where they are. Yeah, he, he comes off as, as dark and his work, and he, you know, he definitely was wrestling with issues. And, and the, the quietness of Hopper paintings uh, is really striking. It's not now that I'm approaching all of these issues from the, your lens of perspective of spirituality, seeing that thoughtfulness in, in Hopper is not hard to do at this point. And linking it with the other works in the museum is really makes it even more, enjoy, I enjoy Hopper's work. Uh, struggle more with Jackson Pollock, but many people do. Uh, and uh, it, it really adds an additional layer of meaning of seeing these, these linkages between the, the, these artists. So you've got all these vignettes and um, th this narrative uh, put, pulled together. How would you, you know, summarize it to get people both in the museum and with, with pilgrimage to the museum as, as their guidebook? Well, uh, you know, I would ask people to have an open heart. Uh, we're all seeking the transcendent in some ways, sometimes uh, very overtly and other times uh, maybe subconsciously even. And uh, what's really beautiful about using the pilgrimage as an entry to that is it helps you see life as a journey. I mean, everyone that you said it, Dan, like most people who have read the pilgrimage have said to me they'll never look at a piece of art the same way again. Um, you begin to see life as a journey. I mean, Dan, you know, I'm as much a teacher as I am a, um, an investor or anything else. So there is a certain teacher element here in an experiential way, I think, not a didactic way, but helping people understand how to read art and um, in an own personal way. So you may not come to the same conclusions I come to, but you're certainly going to come to different conclusions than you would have come to if you hadn't read the pilgrimage to the museum. I have to, again, concur with that we come from different uh, traditions, but uh, this is certainly not in any way a heavy-handed sectarian uh, approach to, the, to this exercise. It is a very open approach, and I appreciate uh, that you chose to write it in that manner. The book is Pilgrimage to the Museum, Man's Search for God Through Art and Time by Stephen Auth, co-written with his wife, Evelyn Auth, and um, Father Sean Aaron. Steve, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Dan.